let's get agreement that this is a strategic priority. That area of alignment and synergy can be very Looking important. The future, we're committed to expand valuation. time, there's still progress that needs to be made. This is Healthcare Strategies. Welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Hannah Nelson, Assistant Editor for EHRintelligence.com. Joining us today is Dr. Kim Dong, Assistant Professor in the Department of Public Health and Community Medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine, and Linda Rowe, Senior Advisor for Value-Based Systems at Inner Systems. Incarcerated individuals are often an overlooked population, particularly when it comes to healthcare delivery when reintegrating into society. While in jail, individuals receive care, including diagnosis and treatment for chronic illnesses. However, the transition of care back into the community can be challenging due to fragmented care systems and data sharing barriers. Dr. Dong, you co-authored a study on streamlining transitions of care for incarcerated individuals with HIV. Could you talk to me about the challenges that exist for these transitions of care? So as you mentioned before, one thing to keep in mind is that jails can provide opportunities to help diagnose and treat individuals for HIV. Based on the research that I conducted from the interviews for people that were incarcerated with HIV, they explained that the care that they were receiving at the jail was actually really good. And talking with the jail care providers, we learned that a lot of people take their medication and their viral loads are good. The virus is suppressed. But what happens is once they are released, given that the release dates tend to be a little disjointed, especially for individuals that are pre-release, it's really hard to do sort of that pre-release planning to make sure that people have that smooth transition of care into the community. And by that, I mean making sure that individuals have access to an appointment to a community provider within 30 days upon release, and having access to HIV medications for at least 30 days post-release to make sure that there's a window before they're seen in the community that they can have continuity of care. Okay, great. Now, I know the CDC has its own guidelines for HIV care continuity from jail to the community. But your study noted that only 17% of jails follow those best practices. Could you talk about what the guidelines are and what implementation barriers exist currently? Sure, thanks. So the current CDC guidelines for HIV care um, during post-release are to make sure that individuals are provided with an adequate supply of their HIV medications. So Upon, but as I mentioned earlier, usually that's about a 30-day supply of their medication in order to bridge that gap in time to seeing a community provider. Having an appointment with a community provider within 30 days and providing access to the medical record during their time while they were incarcerated to be able to provide to their community provider. Um, and I just wanted to quickly also note that you know, what we see within this fragmented care that you alluded to earlier is that, as I mentioned, most people when they're treated in jail have good control over the virus. And what we found from some of the studies out there on post-release care is that 50% of people who take HIV meds while incarcerated only remained on medications after release. 
Less than 20% filled HIV prescriptions or visited their HIV clinics within 30 days, and less than 50% saw a provider within 90 days of their release, and that a third of them had detectable HIV virus at their first visit. So essentially all of that hard work for getting that virus under control during incarceration sort of falls by the wayside once people are released due to this poor post-release planning. So these CDC guidelines are set up to help to ensure that there's that continuity of care. However, the issue with the carceral system is that there aren't a lot of systems to evaluate that these processes are happening or to ensure that they're happening. There's no similar entity to like JACO in the hospital system to ensure that this is happening in jails and prisons. And so a lot of this unfortunately does not get prioritized. And so we see this poor transition or lack of warm handoffs once people are released. And I think one of the biggest challenges that, you know, have been identified by jail providers are that they can't predict when someone, especially if they're pre-sentence, pre-trial, when they will be released. And so there needs to be some time to be able to get the medication ordered for that 30-day supply, to be able to make that appointment for that community provider. And so that piece of information is lacking. Additionally, what we learned from our study was that the care tends to be a bit siloed within the jails and then between the jails and the community. And so within the jails, at least in some of the institutions that we evaluated, the case management team, for example, would know when someone's being released, but they, through what they thought were HIPAA issues, not able to share release dates with the health services team. So the nurses and the infectious disease coordinators that would coordinate pre-release care. Kim, one of the things that you and I talked about previously, too, is that some of these folks come into the prison system already having an existing relationship, like with a federally qualified health center or with a clinic. And so their sort of transitions are probably easier than those that have disjointed care and or no care going in and probably come and get this really good care and then sort of are left and unsure. So, you know, are there things that you learned through that process, through your interviews and your study around that? Yeah, absolutely, Linda. Great point. So as Linda mentioned, we found that for individuals that were already engaged in HIV care prior to incarceration, most often they had built these rapports with their HIV providers in the community and would be able to kind of show up without an appointment and their providers would allow them to do a walk-in appointment. However, for people that are newly diagnosed, they don't have these relationships formed or unfortunately, people that have substance use disorder and once upon release end up actively engaging in drug use again, that care became pretty fragmented and it was difficult to link to a provider. Additionally, what we noticed is that individuals that were releasing from jail directly to a substance use treatment center they had successful transitions into the community that way because most of the treatment centers, or all of them actually, required that individuals come with at least a 30-day supply of their medication, their medical records, et cetera. So all of the things that the CDC recommends that was in place when transitioning to a substance use treatment center. Wow. Okay. So I guess kind of switching gears, you mentioned in the study that Many community providers want access to carceral patient health records. 
but they just don't know how to access them. Could you tell me why is this the case and how could interoperability of these records be improved? Yeah, great question. Unfortunately, there's not a phone number that is publicized for the health center, for the jails. And so it's really hard for a community provider to navigate, you know, who to get in touch with. Sometimes, unfortunately, when a patient comes into the community provider's clinic, they can't remember the name of the medication that they were on. They won't remember their lab values. And so it's really hard. At the one particular jail that I did this evaluation, the physician there tended to do some workarounds and would try to have her patients while they were incarcerated give permission to talk with community providers so that she could share information. And, you know, maybe it was a little bit delayed sometimes because she wouldn't know when someone was released, but she would say, you know, hey, Dr. So-and-so, I have your patient is incarcerated. They said, I could let you know this. And this is the regimen that I have them on. And so that that at least helped, but that's not the usual practice. And so there really needs to be this transfer and sharing of information to ensure smooth care for these individuals, not only for their health, which is important, but additionally for the importance of the community as well. These have big public health um, implications too. Yeah, and the jails, carceral systems certainly have electronic health records or some kind of record keeping system, but they're certainly not the same advanced systems that you would see in hospital systems or even in some advanced, you know, ambulatory practices. So their ability to actually share data may be limited. In the cases where they can, though, you may not be in a state or a region that has an HIE, a health information exchange, that actually wants to connect uh, to the jail systems or the jail system is under a public authority that has restrictions about how that data might be shared. There certainly are some states and regions where the health information exchange does connect to the carceral system and can provide that information to community-based providers, which would be sort of the ideal way to do it, right, rather than having to do this point-to-point. But I would say that that is probably the exception still in the U.S. than the rule, which makes these transitions of care very difficult because they are phone calls, they are faxes, they are cold handoffs, not warm handoffs, the way one would like to see. Because if you think about if the information flows before the patient that provides sort of that transition of care that you really want to see happen in a community-based relationship like that. Because it's a very personal relationship. It's very different than you just going to your primary care provider. Yeah, that's a great point, Linda. And in the institutions where you know we have done an evaluation, it's just that it's siloed and the type of electronic health record that the health services unit has, the fields are different than what the electronic record for the case management team has, and that those two systems aren't speaking to each other. And so if they could even share that information within the organization, that would be great. And then, of course, what we would love to see is, as Linda mentioned, that ability to share outside of the organization. And also being able to share within jails, because unfortunately, individuals may be incarcerated in a different jail across the state or in a neighboring state. And so for that ability for the jails to even speak and share 
health information would be extremely useful. But unfortunately, as Linda mentioned, that is not the usual practice right now. Yeah, that's something I hadn't even really thought very much about. There's interoperability and then there's intraoperability, which was another term in the health IT space and how there's not the intraoperability between different jails across the nation. So that's also something to keep in mind. The other thing you want to think about too is because HIV and substance abuse are protected classes of information, both federally, but also every state has its own restrictions, that makes the data sharing even more difficult. I know Kim and I have had this conversation about granting consent. And I think that what she found, she can speak to this, is that most of these patients that are in the jail systems are willing to share it, but nobody has gone and asked for that active consent to be able to do the data sharing. So there's that second layer of the interoperability maybe being there, but then not having the actual sort of consent or permission to share. Yeah. And it was interesting in my research, you know, doing the evaluation of these processes where case managers were saying the only way that they could find out if their client has HIV is if the client disclosed that. And, you know, for some of the, you know, uh, people with HIV that I spoke with that were incarcerated, they said to me, it didn't even occur to them to mention this to the case manager, that it was only something that they should share with the health services team. So nurses, physicians, for example. And so again, that ability to share this information, you know, for case managers, as they were saying, they could plan for post-release care to different housing units that specialize to provide housing for people with HIV and other different wraparound services that would be of benefit. So again, as Linda mentioned, you know, this ability to figure out what can be shared and how to share it across even teams within an organization is really essential. Yes. Definitely. Thank you so much for that perspective. Now that we've talked about how things are now, I think it would be great to look forward to how can this be improved? So what practices can jails and community health providers follow to better support data sharing for patients with chronic illnesses such as HIV? This is a great question. And I think there are some researchers that are addressing this from different points within the exchange of care. My colleagues and I were interested in looking at this from the pre-release standpoint. So what can jails do to streamline this information and to make, for example, release dates a little bit more easily accessible? And therefore, are there ways through data sharing to automate to then therefore order medications for 30-day supplies upon release from state pharmacies, et cetera, making sure that individuals' health insurance is reactivated and ready to go upon release, because that is another issue that oftentimes when individuals are back in the community and trying to get their care, their health insurance wasn't reactivated. And so that tends to be a big barrier as well, not only to be able to see their providers, but to get their medication, which they need to do on a daily basis. So we're interested in looking at how to address this from the pre-release within the jail, but then there are individuals that are studying this as post-release care. And so there are people looking at this across the country using transition clinics, for example, and how to bridge that release and bridge that transition of care And people have used peer navigators, community health workers, for example, to bring individuals into care once they're released from jail or prison. 
And then I think that kind of like at the bigger level, there are some individuals looking at how to share data, not necessarily looking at it at the individual level, but looking at the state data from the carceral system and release dates, and then looking at, for example, Ryan White care data at the clinical level to see when, based on some unique identifiers, when people actually linked to care into the community and either having access to a viral load or pharmacy intake data to be able to match it up. So there are some ways to do this. It's not perfect because as Linda mentioned, not everyone has access to this data. The data are variable across states. And so, you know, until we kind of are able to streamline this a little bit better, I think we're going to see everyone trying to do these one-offs, which you know, in some cases work and it's varying results, but we also want to worry about, you know, how do we make this more sustainable? And so unfortunately right now, a lot is still put on the individual to be able to engage and link into care. And when we know, unfortunately, this population, you know, with all the inequities with social determinants of health and the ability to achieve health equity is very challenging. There's competing priorities post-release trying to kind of move it more upstream and helping make it more of a systems piece and taking it out of the individuals would be great. And I think that ability to share data is going to be key to all of this. I would just add, there has been quite a bit of federal money that's been invested or is at least allocated to support public health initiatives, right? And I think states need to think strategically as well as organizations about how they invest that. And some of it could be invested in updating, you know, systems like the electronic health records across various parts of the sort of social spectrum of care in the state. So, you know, carceral systems, even some of the, you know, community-based organizations to provide a way to be able to connect them to the rest of the care community. Because I think that, you know, they live in these islands, these silos, and part of it is an investment. And, and, you know, it'd probably start with pilots and start with areas where folks like Kim and her colleagues can do some research around What's the benefit if you start connecting up like the what if, if you start connecting, you know, your carceral system, your social systems and your care systems together, what happens and how can you really make a difference in moving that data? I also think the consent issue should be made a lot easier. It could be just something that when you enter the carceral system and the first time you're tested and you test positive, that they ask the question, can we share your information and who can we share it with? And that's recorded and that's on record. And everybody knows that that affirmative consent has been given broadly or narrowly. It could be both or either um, so that you know who you can share information with. So it's not a question. When you actually get to the point where you need the consent. Right. And then just the caveat, too, is that if for people that are newly diagnosed and may not have a community provider, how to link it for to, to bridge and form that new relationship between the patient and the provider. Okay, yeah, there's certainly a lot at play here. But like you mentioned, kind of a systematic approach to it would definitely take it away from the individual to be responsible to seek out care and things like that. So yeah, that's really super fascinating. Dr. Dong, could you talk about future research plans for this issue? Yes, thanks. So hoping to still continue to do some of these quality improvement evaluations of 
processes for pre-release care within the jail system would be helpful. And then additionally, thinking about other ways to sort of bridge care. And so right now there are longer acting medications that are injected for HIV that may potentially help to buy some time and not need to worry about releasing with a 30-day supply of medications. So some of these longer acting medications could potentially be a possibility. Right now I'm getting thoughts from people that are incarcerated about these longer acting medications. And unfortunately, there's a lot of skepticism and medical mistrust. So unfortunately, we thought that this would be a good answer for this population. And right now, based on some of the interviews that I've conducted, seems to be some skepticism around uptake for this. So um, stay tuned. That that that's another arena for sure. And then thinking about, you know, could we potentially have Again, individuals like peer navigators or community health workers that could help with the transition of care post-release as well. Great. That's super, super exciting stuff. And Dr. Dong and Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, oh, thank you so much. We're really excited to be here. Yes, thank you. And for our listeners, feel free to reach out to us at hnelson at techtarget.com to share your thoughts on this topic. You can also use that email address to tell us any other healthcare-related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. If you like the episode, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars and a positive review. Thanks for listening. This has been an Excelligent Healthcare Media production. 